Hi, this is Jim Martin, and this is my encouragement note number 56. I'm glad you're reading this encouragement note. Maybe there's something here that will help you take the next step. You may need to have a conversation with someone. You may need to write a note. And you may know right now what that next step is. The list of five. I almost missed this, but I'm glad I read it again. I love the following instructions for living a life, written by Mary Oliver from her poem, Sometimes. And here are the three lines. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. I almost missed the significance of these three lines the first time I read them. And I'm glad I read them again. These simple lines are a reminder that navigating life while challenging can also be pretty basic. Number one, pay attention. Pay attention to things that matter. As a Christ follower, this means paying attention to the words and desires of Jesus. I want to pay attention to the people in my life. And I don't want to be staring at a screen on my phone instead of being fully present with another person. Instead of formulating my response while another person is talking, I want to listen intently with my curiosity engaged. Number two, be astonished. I want to have a sense of wonder as I witness the beautiful character of God and His powerful actions. I do not want to lose the wow that most naturally comes as one thinks and feels and experiences the presence of God. Finally, tell about it. Number three, life was never meant to be lived within our own heads. There is something life-giving when we express to another how we have witnessed the wonder of God. Today, I don't want to be on autopilot and mindlessly miss the beauty around me. I don't want to be so busy that I'm never really present with anyone. I want to pay attention to what matters. I want to still be astonished at the beauty and the power of God. There's a quote by someone, I'm probably going to mispronounce the name, uh, Gillis Deleuze. I love this. I love these, this line. We don't suffer, he says, these days from any lack of communication but rather from all of the forces making us say things when we've, got, when we've nothing much to say. Sometimes we may even feel compelled to give our opinions on various subjects when we just don't have much to say. Yet what matters is not how much we talk or comment or post. What matters is listening well and learning. What matters is being present and paying attention. Next, four investments that could be life-changing. The recent article, How a Cancer Diagnosis Makes Jesus' Death and Resurrection Mean More, by Tish Harrison Warren, really caught my attention. In the article, Tim Keller expresses the following thoughts regarding his cancer diagnosis. And these are Keller's words. My wife, Kathy, and I are fairly well known as being a team. 
In many ways, we are joined at the hip. Right after the cancer was diagnosed, we realized it wasn't right to come to the end of our lives without improving our marriage in places where it could be better. There were some things that she felt that she could not talk to me about because I didn't respond well, and she had given up trying to do it. But now we're finding breakthroughs and being able to talk about certain things and deal with them in a way that we never were able to before. And then you immediately look around at your children and your grandchildren and say, what are the things I want to say to them and do with them? Then thirdly, writing. I'm asking, what are some things I want to write about? Notes in a bottle to the future church. And the last thing is trying to encourage people. I want to be an encourager. Those are Keller's words. And there's something about his words that bring clarity and perspective to life. Though he writes from New York City, his words can be helpful whether we live in a city, a suburb, or a small town. When I was 40 years old, this would be about 1993, Charlotte and I were living in Waco, Texas with our two young daughters. At one point, after several x-rays, a physician discovered a large tumor near the top of my spine. Days later, I sat in a surgeon's office, scared to death, and I listened as he told me he would be opening up my chest to remove this tumor. Now, it was benign, but I was still scared to death. I called my friend Dan Anders, who ministered on the campus of Pepperdine University. He battled cancer for a long time. And he said, the first time you catch a whiff of your own mortality, it is terrifying. Maybe Keller caught a whiff of his own mortality when he expressed the four things he wishes to do with his time. Wonder what might our lives be like if we held to the same four commitments. Number one, what would you say to your spouse if you knew this would be his or her last day? Number two, what might you say to your children if you knew you had little time to live? And is this something that you need to be intentional about communicating right now? Three, what would you say or what would you like to say to the future church? What might you say on behalf of those whom you love dearly who will be a part of that church? And number four, who would you intentionally seek to encourage? We don't have to wait until we have a serious disease in order to spend the remainder of our time wisely. Perhaps we can learn from Keller as he writes about these four desires in his own life. I'm grateful for this reminder to invest my life in a few things that matter most, cancer or no cancer. Next, when leaving isn't the answer. What does a person do with emotional pain? Many people simply leave. Now, they don't necessarily leave physically. Rather, they leave emotionally. Many have learned to respond to pain by withdrawing. When our granddaughter was still a toddler, she learned to play hide-and-seek. When it was her turn to hide, she would close her eyes, 
thinking that she was hidden from the sight of others as long as her eyes were closed. Some of us have tried to deal with pain by going within. In essence, we closed our eyes thinking this was a safe place to hide. While withdrawing may be one's default for dealing with pain, it's not conducive to connecting emotionally with another person. In fact, for family members and friends, it can feel like the person has gone away. When we leave one another emotionally, where do we go? Number one, some of us just stay very, very busy. We lose ourselves in our work. Maybe we can stay so busy that we're not preoccupied with the pain and the emptiness we feel. Two, some of us look for a way to medicate or numb our pain, alcohol, drugs, pornography. And some parents may lose themselves in their children to avoid addressing the painful issues of their marriage. And yet this can be a way of not dealing with pain. Number three, some of us retreat to a room within ourselves which may seem safe but actually serves to disconnect us from the people we love most. This cave can be a place that might seem safe, but it actually may expose us again to memories of earlier moments of shame, humiliation, and disappointment. Early in our marriage, Charlotte would occasionally say to me, don't go away. She wasn't talking about physically leaving our family. It had never occurred to me to leave our family and live elsewhere. However, I would lose myself in my work and my thoughts and withdraw to a safe place in my mind that unfortunately excluded everyone else by virtue of my silence. What I eventually learned is that withdrawal into the self is actually futile. Your mind can become a museum consisting of the relics of unresolved conflict, unprocessed wound, and a pain that was never acknowledged. Many years later, I see the same behavior in others. Some are young men who have allowed themselves to become moody and emotionally unpredictable. Others are men and women who've stored away decades of pain, hurt, and resentment. Basically, this behavior changes by the grace of God. This probably won't happen overnight. For many men, this may have been a default behavior for many years. However, rather than saying, that's just the way I am, Christians believe that God is powerful enough to break the chains of this futility. Christians, through the power of the Spirit, deal with their lives instead of allowing their relationships to fall apart. One place to begin might be in voicing to God in a spirit of humility what you are really thinking and what you're really feeling. Trust that He is good and that His love for you is far greater than you can even imagine. Being present in the moment can be painful at times. However, it's far better to stay connected regardless of the pain than to attempt to go it alone. Next, ministry survival, number two. This is especially for ministers and other church leaders. The following is from a list I created entitled 10 Ways to Survive in the First Year of Ministry with a Congregation. Five of these were in the encouragement note, number 55. Number one, 
be interested in how God has been working in this congregation long before you began your ministry. Ask others, what do you love about this church? Or what has been a high point for this church since you have been here? This can be an humble reminder that the work of God does not begin with me and my ministry skill. Number two, follow through. If you say, let's have lunch or coffee, follow through. If you get text or emails that call for an answer, follow through. Be aware of the promises you are making. Follow through. Number three, you don't have to give an opinion or comment on every matter. When someone criticizes a previous ministry in the congregation, you're not compelled to explain or defend. Just listen. Number four, be aware of the threats. The threat of idealism, the threat of inadequacy, the threat of using uh, distance to deal with intimidation, the threat of loneliness. And some of, it know, some of us know what it is to feel so lonely within a congregation or within a ministry. We may know what it is to feel as if no one in the church knows what we're going through. Number five, pay attention to your spouse. Adjusting to a new congregation can be hard. Pay attention to the instincts of your spouse as you navigate your way through the congregation. I hope this issue of my encouragement note has been helpful. If you look at the text of this encouragement note, you can see some resources, things I've read or listened to recently. You might enjoy that. Until the next time, I hope that God continues to richly bless you and that he blesses you and I both with fresh encouragement.